everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you all being here. Appreciate supporting people support us. Do check out drdrew.com for the other pods. Don't forget After Dark. And of course, those streaming shows at uh, drdrew.tv have been terribly, terribly interesting. And I think you guys might like that. So let's get right into today's show. It's Dr. Raul Mera. He is the Chief Physician Executive at National Center for Performance Health. He, he Today, we're going to talk a little bit about mental health, mental wellness, um, and how so much of what we're doing these days is reacting with downstream models of how to how to manage the crisis we are in. Dr. Mera, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you all. So let me just start by kind of musing on the topic, which is, you know, the prevention of mental health uh, issues, uh, maintaining mental wellness. This has been a grail that uh, physicians and governments have been in pursuit of for a long time. Can you frame the problem for us and uh, talk to us a little bit about what your solutions are focused in? Sure. And when the term prevention is used, we always need to define further if we're talking about the medical community, right? Because there's primordial prevention, there's primary prevention. My view on things is that the prevention that is discussed at the government level is secondary or tertiary prevention. Mm-hmm. It's not primary or primordial. And there, there, the along with that, there is no, in my judgment, a public health policy approach to mental health and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And so the solutions we are working on specifically, they're called emotional vaccines, which are two to three minute micro educational videos that are designed to normalize conversations about everyday life challenges that we all have. So, so I've got to already have a ton of questions and thoughts, uh, and I, I like nothing more than crapping all over government policy when it comes to mental health because it's just been an abject failure, all the way back to I don't know if you know the history on this that uh, the original founder of the National Institute of Mental Health was a psychiatrist I think his last name was Brown who never set foot in a psychiatric care facility ever in his career. And the two gentlemen that followed him also had, well, one had spent a month uh, at the Lexington, Kentucky farm that the federal government maintained, and the other had walked into a Colorado State facility. They all were psychoanalysts, came from an antiquated sense of uh, how we manage mental illness. They were from this weird era of philosophy that where Michel Foucault had taken hold and uh, all mental illness was the result of institutionalization. And they then set up the community mental health centers that were abject failures, abject, abject, abject. And no thought of exactly what you laid out, primary, primordial, secondary, tertiary. What are these different prevention methods? We're just going to prevent mental illness. Okay, guys, good, good luck. Um, so, so to me, the, the, and it has gone on to this day. I mean, all the lockdowns and all the COVID policies paid no, no, um, issue, paid no care to what they were doing in terms of the mental health impact. And now we're living in that. I'm sure you're seeing that as well. Oh, absolutely, sir. When you, when you speak about community mental health, I know that like the back of my hand, I've been the chief medical officer, uh, for the one of the largest ones in the state of Florida. And while we need them at some level, certainly for the acute hospitalization and stabilization, but again, that's tertiary. 
It's not primordial or, or primary prevention, which the existing models really don't want to hear about. And Dr. Drew, I'll just, I'm very direct and open with my opinions. Keep going. Is that it's very, it's very simple to understand is that because there's no money in prevention and primary prevention, mm-hmm. there is money in secondary and tertiary prevention. And it doesn't matter whether you're a nonprofit or for profit. That's where the money comes from. And it's OK. I'm a capitalist at heart. But at the same time, our organization and me as a human, I'm driven by my heart and passion to solve problems not to look at my bank account. Yeah. I mean, we can, I mean, as physicians, if we lose track of that, we're in big trouble. We are, we're always in trouble when that's that, you know, it's fine to be a capitalist, but you've got to keep the patients front and center. So emotional vaccines. um, I kind of want to also talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, a sort of a, a pet peeve of mine is we do, we do, we conflate, well, when Dr. Freud first got to this country uh, in uh, the early part of the 20th century, reporters threw microphones in his face and said, Dr. Freud, what do you ex- hope to achieve here in the United States? And he said, well, I hope to come to an understanding here of the difference between real mental illness and ordinary misery. And we've lost track of ordinary misery, brain diseases per se, and wellness. These these are overlapping and different topics. Help me with that. Sure. Is that what we've lost sight of is the compartmentalizing those, right? When it should be viewed as a continuum. We, we all have a biological predisposition. At some level, some families genetically, including myself, uh, Psychiatric illness is something that historically has been part of my genetics. I'm further predisposed compared to someone who doesn't have that predisposition. And then we have the, that's the biological part. Then we have the psychosocial elements that happen in our lives. And that's what determines the manifestation of a bona fide illness. And it's that continuum that gets forgotten. It's viewed as if you have a psychiatric illness, you're way over here. You're not, you're something unusual and abnormal. And that's where, that's why the stigma is alive and well. If we're really going to solve the problem, the stigma is the first starting point. That's my thought. You know, so stigma has, you know, there, there's many, I've actually done lectures on stigma, the different kinds of stigma, right? Uh, you know, and there's self-stigma, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stigma. And where stigma really, in my opinion, I, there's sort of two, two, well, two important aspects, I think, in stigma. We're just, since we're starting there, I'll, I'll throw my opinion in. One is self-stigma can reduce self-efficacy. And, and that really is where people get into trouble, where they start feeling broken or there's, just, there's something wrong with me, therefore... Why do I try and that kind of thing? And the opposite of self-efficacy and stigma is is advocation, advocating for yourself, advocating for your disease and fellow patients. Advocating does a great deal to reducing self-stigma. And then uh, what was the other stigma that <laughs> I forgot the other? Uh, shoot. 
Well, self-stigma. Your dogs distracted you. Yes, they sure did. <laughs> uh, it's also the aging brain, which is another thing that's a f- lovely thing to f- have to deal with. Um, but but stigma. Uh, let me think for just one second. Oh, it's going to come to me after a few minutes, which is and that's part of the aging brain function. Is it comes back to you after a while? But stigma is something that can be managed. Is the point I want to make? It's something that has. Oh, I know. Here it came to me. So the stigma, the, the general category of stigmatizing other people, can be fought with contact. Much like racism and bigotry and other things can be fought with contact, with actually being connected to other human beings with these conditions. They just become other human beings with with an illness like pneumonia or anything else. So advocating and contact to me are the two big categories that we can use to fight con- fight stigma. Do you agree with that? I do. Can I elaborate? No, that's, what I'm hope- that's what I'm hoping. Those are my naive ideas to start with. Well, no, they're not naive at all. They're spot on. But the but the stigma part about contact is I'll take a further step back. Let's let's remove the illness from it. Let's talk about that. I, Rahul Mera, am struggling with the fact that in April, April of 22, that my business partner of over 20 years died unexpectedly. Right. That's a real thing that happened in my life. Mm. And am I okay talking to others, right? It's a life challenge that we all go through is the stigma removal starts with me that I feel comfortable talking to my friends, my family, our clients about what has happened and reassuring them. But that sheer fact of just talking about what your struggles are is really the starting point to mitigate and prevent potentially something more serious happening down the line. That's where, yeah. So, so contact has multiple sort of elements to it. The contact, if I'm just an average person that's feeling stigma towards somebody with struggling with something, my contact can reduce my stigma at the same time, my contacting you can actually reduce your symptomatology or at least help move the symptomatology in a healthy direction, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and even as a result of the pandemic now, our hearts and minds need to be even more open to each other and what we're struggling with, right? Whether it's yeah. even that individual at customer service where you're pumping your gas or whatever it is, is, yeah. is showing some patience and kindness you don't know what that other person has kind of gone through that day and what they're they're bringing in. Well, you know, this so now we're getting to the the category of empathy, right? Yes, absolutely. Which is a big big I'm going to put that on the side for a second because that's a big big topic. And, and I have a little theory uh, I want to sh- just sort of test test it with you, which is you know, we've got lots of primitive wiring in our head that's left over from our evolutionary heritage. And I think I'm of the opinion, has every, you know, I don't know if you were trained as a biologist, but I was. And so to answer every question, like, what's the evolutionary purpose of this? It's, it's, you know, why did this, why is this here? Is sort of always the, the question I ask myself. But I noticed that this, the kind of pulling away that people do with folks, from folks with mental illness, particularly the more um, thought disorder, or the more things associated with peculiar behaviors, it's identical to the behavior that they manifest in something called the uncanny valley in robot literature. 
Are you familiar with the Uncanny Valley? Have you ever heard of this? No, sir. I'm not. So, so there's a huge literature in the robot world. There's always, you know, there's all these people looking at the elephant from different angles, you know, and these guys are seeing a big toenail or something, and I am keep looking at the trunk, whatever. Uh, but I'd like to look at the whole elephant. So I try to bring in as much ideas as I can get my hands on. But turns out robot, robot literature, they've documented that people, humans, like robots more as they become more like a real human till they get so close that it's unco- like they're really almost they almost can't tell the difference and then they experience disgust and hatred and pull away it's called the uncanny valley they go up 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 and then boom just fall off a cliff into an uncanny valley and that to me it feels similar to how they behave around people with say psychotic illness. Like those are humans, but they're not like the humans I normally see. And therefore I pull away They're They're doing something I can't explain with my normal brain. Therefore they're, they must be dangerous. I, I know what it is for some reason we pull away and that's in our evolutionary heritage. I suspect it has something to do with infectious diseases because that's really where a lot of that stuff comes from is that, the whole function of disgust is to reduce at, you know contact with infectious disease and i think you know people behaving in ways that are just un- uncanny to us look infected and might we might catch it as sort of the most primitive most primitive sort of response we could have does that does that strike true to you absolutely and i think said another way is that what it presents is a threat right because if you've not seen it, touched it, or felt it, and you're encountered with someone else's behavior, then yeah, it's it's scary, it's threat, you don't know how to deal with it. And when you talk about infectious disease, stress is the most in, in, infectious disease we have. Yeah, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And whether or not you're giving gifts during the holiday, it might be time to give yourself a little gift if you're thinking of starting therapy. Go easy on yourself during these tough holiday times. It can be stressful for a variety of reasons. Remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. Of course, I'm a fan of BetterHelp, and I've been involved with mental health services for quite some time, both as a patient and as somebody who is a practitioner. I've been referring family, friends, patients, been very pleased with the services that BetterHelp provides. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, switch therapist anytime for no additional charge, and no longer the excuse of embarrassment or stigma. That, that's... That, it won't fly anymore. Not when you've got better help. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. So, so now we've built this sort of weird infectious model uh so the idea of inoculation now is sort of a natural concomitant right it sort of naturally flows from these ideas so is was that your similar to your thought process in coming up with the emotional vaccines and, and absolutely yeah it was Interesting. to normalize that stress and to elevate people's awareness mm. about stress and anxiety that we all experience especially if you're talking about children is contagious 
mm-hmm. right? Especially during mm-hmm. the well, pandemic. Well, yes. I mean, think about it. I mean, when you when you put that contagion model, it's intergenerational trauma. It's what governments do to us. It's wars. It's all these. You can go layers and layers and layers to that model. Absolutely. But we, you know, what little time I have left on this earth, we've, we've got to chip away at educating people on that. And that's what emotional vaccines represent. It's just simple education. So let's d- dig into that. Uh, and and do, do before we do, though, we didn't really tease out that topic that bothers me that 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 wellness versus illness sort of stuff. We, we get that very, very confused. Can, can Do you have a way of parsing that out for people? Well, sure, is that in my judgment, everyone has wellness, yeah. even with somebody with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Yes. They they have a degree of wellness. But again, it goes back to creating silos between illness, wellness, and yes. you're in one of these yes. categories. Okay, and we, we, so, okay. Yeah. so even I was thinking in terms of sort of Venn diagrams, but that even that's too siloed. It really is wellness is the is the on top of everybody and then within that is all these other things that people experience yes sir yeah okay that that really helps me actually in terms of thinking of this because it's always bugged me that that you know organizations go out to try to improve wellness and they ignore everything else that's inside that package but uh, that could be okay that could be oh, it doesn't bother me as much when i think of it that way at least so go let's get back into the vaccines what what's going on there Oh, it's it's tremendous what's going on. So it's not just about us uh, creating some video content. It's also, if we're going to s- solve these problems, is the strategic positioning of these this content into community-based organization, like boys and girls clubs, uh, those types of entities, churches, uh, universities, because Dr. Drew, as a psychiatrist or a licensed therapist, nurse practitioner, certainly by sitting in in our four walls of an office or sitting in front of a computer screen doing telemedicine, fantastic. We need that. That has value. But we need to be taking our knowledge and going out to the public where the public already is, where there's already trust. Parents are trusted with the Boys and Girls Club. They're bringing their children there to the club. That's where, quote, stigma reduction begins, that it's okay to talk about everyday life challenges. Mm-hmm. Why do you think people resist that in the first place? It doesn't make, you know, it's not obvious why people would do so. Well, why do they resist it? Because yeah. they've never heard of it. I mean, no, no, I exist just talking about our weaknesses and strengths and struggles. And you would think it'd be the most natural thing in the world, and yet people resist it, men particularly. Oh, oh, absolutely. So it's judgment, right? And it's social stereotypes that we're supposed to be strong and not have weaknesses and not share with us our vulnerabilities. Mm. It's really, you know, when you look at leaders, what, what are successful, really successful leaders are individuals who are able to share their vulnerabilities. Mm. Mm. And that's how you transform the people you're trying to lead. I, I wanted just a little more into the vulnerability versus uh, unwillingness to, to talk about struggles because the reality is, and I think, I think things have moved this direction is that 
being clear and speaking openly about vulnerabilities actually speaks of strength. I mean, Marcus Aurelius did that for goodness sakes. You know, that's what he, that's what his stoic meditations were about his weaknesses. And I wonder if some of this sort of unwillingness to, to uh, talk about that stuff is sort of a weird historical anachronism. And because, you know, we come from British heritage and then we have a bunch of wars where people aren't allowed to be vulnerable Maybe it's not the normal state. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, when you talk about the British Empire, my ancestors were dominated by them in India. So mm-hmm. I get your analogy mm-hmm. and things. But mm-hmm. but yes, you, you are correct about the Western view of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that gets passed on, like you said to earlier, intergenerationally. And mm-hmm. those things continue. But it is my duty, I feel, to point that out, to elevate the consciousness to it, to get someone to stop and think, and then perhaps do something differently. Tell, talk to me more about the inoculations. How do they work? What are they? What can we learn from them? Let's let's get in. Let's, let's dig in. Sure. This is taking everyday life challenges. We have two verticals we call one self-care for adults. The other category is called Families Thrive. That content is directed towards adults who have children, uh, grandparents, coaches, and teachers. It's, again, taking everyday life challenges. Let's look at divorce, right? A commonly occurring thing. The Mm -hmm. impact of divorce, depending on how that is handled by the adults in the life of that child, is going to have not only short-term consequences, but long-term impact as well if things don't go well. And what I mean specifically by that is that parents, in, in the case of divorce, often may disparage each other. Children will hear that, and that disparaging sticks with children for the rest of their lives. What we are pointing out to parents is stop. It's okay to be angry with each other, but handle your anger not in front of your child and be respectful and kind. The solutions are simple, Dr. Drew, but we overcomplicate things. Mm. And those life events in the worlds of children are more powerful than any medication you can give a child later on in life. Yeah, I I mean, I I always look at uh, ADHD, which is so highly medicated. And then no one talks about the fact that dirty little secret that the majority of those kids by far have a trauma history. Oops. I wonder if we should look at the underlying cause before we slap a medicine on board. Yes. But that then also gets into the medical industrial complex. Go ahead. Go there. I mean, that's, it's it's, a crazy thing. Yeah. It's, you know, at the end of the day, I don't even know. I questioned this Uh, For 30 years of practice, do we actually even know how stimulants actually even work? Certainly they're beneficial. I'm a believer in their benefit. But you are further correct is the default position is just medication. We don't look at the psychosocial issues that we need to help the children with simultaneously because all three of those things perform in concert. It's... um... It's just so interesting to me. You know, you, you, we've probably been practicing about the same time frame, uh, and I'm I'm going to predict that you, like me, 
I find the current moment so odd, just so unanticipated. And so like, how do we get here? And yet you can kind of see it because we, you and I have lived it right. Where, you know, really the employee insurance companies started calling the shots and then big employers started calling the shots and hospital groups calling the shots and the physicians less and less engaged with the patients. It's just, it's just, and, and then now, the centralization of decision-making is at, you know, federal government level and things where it's just the, it, I, I've always said the, the, your most effective, uh, your a tool is the, a, a well-trained caring physician and an informed patient. And that's it. That's your, that's your ultimately efficient unit. Anything you put on top of that, you're creating inefficiency. But the but the complex and now the drug and people I think people are aware of how encumbered everything has become. It's just it's it's very sad. But to me, it feels like I've, I've recently had a sort of a notion that I'm I'm really getting into is that I feel like the only way to undo this is put the locus of control. We we we've been fighting for it to get to the physicians for a long time. We have failed. We have failed. It, it's, yes, I agree. no control. We are helpless. So to me, then, the only way to really fight this is to get the locus of control back to the other piece of this efficient unit, which is the patient. Let's give it back to the patient. Uh, Talk to me how this does more in that direction. Well, yeah, that, that would be ideal. The challenge with that, which I support your analysis yeah the challenge with empowering the patient more is is the internet right is that when when patients may research a condition or something is that then they and we don't know the accuracy of the information that they're digesting and then they bring that in to the medical provider to the physician yeah. uh that's where things start getting a little further complex but but i agree with you in terms of empowering the patient and the families and that's really what we're doing with the emotional vaccines yeah, I, I, the, that's why that's why it occurred to me. That's what it seems like to me. You're doing, and, and but I I would say I would push back on that idea that the internet is strictly the problem because you know we I'm sure you've also been dealing with that for 20 years when people bring in these stacks of documents that really tell us as practitioners who've worked in this for 40 years that the sky is blue. Yes, yes, Mr. Smith, I know the sky is blue. I, I understand. I knew that after the second year of medical school. Do not confuse your Google search with my medical training, which is that's the perfect comeback for that. And people understand that they, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a, a smack in the face. They, 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 they sort of wakes them up a little bit. I feel like back to your inoculation model that we can probably inoculate people against some of the misinformation. I hate that word. Some of the um, problematic information they might get into on, on, online. We can inoculate them against that, too. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And 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 again, to and, and I'm, my agenda is not to purely talk about emotional vaccines, but it is precisely that that you've got a credible source for the information with what we're well, doing. Stop right there. So, but that's the point. That that is the point. It, is that people don't know where to turn. They don't know who to trust. And I would argue they're going to end up trusting people that put things back in their hands. And 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 particularly people like us that don't they don't normally see us doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I oh, think that's yes. a very powerful move. I think I think that's what we have to work on. And, oh, and it also I agree. full advantage of this electronic system that we're all a part of. It really takes advantage of that. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Certainly.
You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show about a guy born into the world of organized crime who spent much of his life as an enforcer for the Italian mafia. And when they seen Joey D, we went to the basement, all weapons. His family were gun runners. He goes, we pick out something. I take to my cousin's car and I drive to 3rd Avenue and I park right in front of the place. There's a parking space. I got the gun in my waistband. When I walked through and I turned around, I seen him. He had his back to me. For whatever the reason, before she even said it, I had the gun in my hand. This guy gets up. What did I tell you, you dirty motherfucker? Your mother's going to have a close coffee. I'm going to blow your fucking head. He opens his jacket and I seen the gun in his waistband. He puts his hand on it. I just picked up my hand like this and emptied the whole clip into him. Joe Colo, give him a drink. He gives me a seven and seven. He goes, look at this kid. He goes, he just killed somebody. He's sitting there killing a cucumber. For more with former mafia enforcer Anthony Raimondi, including the many creative ways mobsters have gotten rid of bodies over the years, check out episode 425 on The Jordan Harbinger Show. So you you bark you break your program into parenting and self care and self care and parenting and uh, let, let's get into parenting a little bit. I, I really get a chance to do that. Uh, what do your what do you sort of worry about on the parenting side? Forget the inoculations per se. I mean, what what kind of you know you see lots of stuff I'm sure. And and what what, what is the trends? What's concerning? What do parents need to know? Well, is that even before the pandemic with the parents? is that my concern first and foremost is they're distracted. They're Mm. distracted. And the success for having a well-adjusted child is to pay attention to them, is to avoid being distracted. And there's multiple reasons why people are distracted, but that's the foundational issue that I see. And it's easy, I think, when you say distracted, everybody thinks, oh, phones, which is part of it, I'm sure, but not all of it. No, it's not all of it. it it's it's work. It's uh, one of the issues is, uh, again, the direct person is the disintegration of the nuclear family. I'm not that's not making a political statement is that, you know, it's, it's very simple in my judgment what children need. They need, number one, a loving consistent, caring adult. Number two, they need a hobby. That's something they're passionate about that's instilled in them. It could be stamp collecting. It could be animals, whatever it is that Hmm. drives and fuels their souls, even as children. Hmm. Number three, having a sense of awe about the world, that the world is greater than them. It's It's called being outside, seeing the world that there's so much out there and there's so much you can do that there's no limits to success and happiness because we really have to keep solutions very simple and foundational. Now, I say those three things with the assumption that we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that someone has basic needs of food, water, shelter, and is not in poverty because those are of concern. And I'm not. And, and they also make it hard for a caring adult to be caring and to be Absolutely. not distracted. Uh, and, and really, we're, we're overlapping with the topic of empathy here, which we get into more detail. But I'm fascinated by hobby and awe. That That is not something that normally I've heard brought forward. And yet it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, 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 it does to me, because I look at my own life. I had two amazing parents. 
and I've, they're both deceased, but I go back and I analyze my own childhood as an immigrant here at age five from India, 1966, and, and living in the South, which I love and grew up with in the small hometown in South Carolina, is, and I, I wouldn't change anything for the world. And I look back and I look through how that happened at that moment in time. And mm. it still sustains me to this day. Mm. Where, where are you now, just out of curiosity? Oh, to, today I'm I'm broadcasting from Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida. So you've stayed yes. in the South. The South is different than uh, I've I've lived in the West my whole life. I've lived in New England a bit of time. These are these are almost different countries. There's and particularly different moments of history. They get very very different. I was just in Florida last week, and it's uh, glorious right now in Florida. The great state of Florida is a lot of fun. People are very happy and a lot of interesting ideas like your own coming out of it. You give, you give people a chance to flourish and thrive. They, they come up with ideas. Yes, sir. We we do. And we do in the state of South Carolina as well. Well, I, the whole my son went to Vanderbilt. And so we got time in Tennessee and I, I've just gotten to know the South in a way I hadn't before. And I, I, I just uh, it, it just like it. It's, it's very pleasant. I, I think if I were a young person, that's where I would head. Oh, it's an amazing. And I would even invite you to come to Gaffney, South Carolina, where we have a second home. And it's in the upper part of the state, small, small city, but a heart of gold. Mm. And remember, if we go back to empathy, think back of what I said at that time when we got to Gaffney in 1968, we were the only Indian family in Gaffney, South Carolina. And I'm going to share something, and I say this with the utmost respect to both faiths. I am probably the only Hindu Baptist you'll ever meet in your life. Um, and you don't have schizophrenia? You do? You do you're, you're, you're torn by that? <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, My wife uh, might disagree, but uh, <laughs> so funny. Yes. Uh, so, so flipping back towards empathy, which is the caring adult piece, which is, you know, there's a whole now discipline slash, uh, world of interpersonal neurobiology, right? We now are sort of parsing out how brains heal other brains, how brains grow other brains and how empathy is a key, key piece of that. I recently, I'm going to pull on your Baptist Hindu chords uh, better angels of our nature together here and ask you to comment on it has seemed to me that the golden rule, just treating other people empathically is really all that is, has vanished in very recent years. Uh, do you worry about that? Is there a way to get that basic aphoristic sort of uh, approach to life back? Is Does it come back naturally? Are we I, I'm, I'm going to let you sort of speculate wildly. I mean, do we need religion more in our life? What, what do we need to get that back? Yes. So the uh, destruction of the golden rule. Yes, I agree with you. That is not in place to the degree that it was. And again, it goes back to my point about distraction and, and the value of human to human interaction. Uh, the further we spend more time not with a human or possibly an animal, the further and further we get away from being real and being in the moment and to that neurobiology, right? It's, again, it's basic, it's common sense. And so, yes, we have lost that. But again, 
that is, and, and, to, and if your question is, how do we find the solution? Yes, absolutely. I am a person of faith. Uh, we do need faith as one of the elements, irrespective of what one's faith is, to re-engage with that. It's one dimension of, of, of someone's being and life that can be very beneficial, irrespective of a psychiatric illness, but can mitigate the development of a psychiatric illness. And here. Uh, and, yeah. And, and, and how? Yeah. So, so you know, I've worked with uh, the 12-step community for many decades, a couple decades, and um, been, you know, it, it's mysterious to me how powerful the the uh, spiritual component is of these programs. But but I, I've had this feeling for about three years that we need like a new Great Awakening. I just don't think the Great Awakening can take, I don't know if organized, something else needs to emerge. I, I you know, some other spiritual something, I suspect uh, the way things are in this country will be necessary for us to kind of find that place. Yes. And I'm, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, we're in agreement. I'm not necessarily saying it needs to be organized faith, but faith can have a lot of different meanings and spirituality, right? They're realizing yeah. that that the essence that we as humans are not in control of everything. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. Is, you is, know, that goes... The two key ingredients, which is that something bigger than yourself and you're not in control. And, 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 and what I, what I see a, a lot of, and you tell me if I'm seeing this correctly, an extraordinary amount of uh, grandiosity uh, in, in many different forms. I, it's not something that was around 15 years ago. Not like this grandiose caring. I don't know. Maybe it's the internet, you know, the social media that makes people feel like they can project themselves out into the world that gives them this grandiose sense of themselves, but whatever it is, it, it, there's a grandiosity that it's running amok right now. <laughs> it's running amok. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I do blame the uh, hold accountable the internet and the social media part of things i i, I will it, it, it goes to me beyond even grandiosity it it goes to narcissism well i suspect that i always figured that's what was underlying it but but you know to to have narcissistic we've had a narcissistic turn right i mean there's you know a lot more narcissistic traits a lot more cluster b personality styles and disorders it's happened that, that must that must happen historically every so often it just must i, I i've been uh, uh you're, you're dragging me into all kinds of interesting speculations here dragging me i'm 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 following you into these weird areas but i become obsessed with pre-revolutionary france because that's the only other period i can find with so much cluster b and uh and we know what happened then it wasn't wasn't it wasn't good mob behavior is part of cluster b and that's part of feeling grandiose and, you know, inflated and all these big feelings that are so gratifying, they get they get worse in a mob. Oh, absolutely. That is what's happening. Yeah. I was afraid you're going to say that. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it's so let's let's talk about history for a second. So so what finally took that down, which was that eventually everybody was put on the guillotine. The people that brought out the guillotines, the people that put the people that brought out the guillotine on the guillotine, everybody up on the guillotine. And then so, you know, that was the terror. Do, does do we require something like that to to dampen all this or will inoculations be sufficient? Well, we could. I, I don't know if I'm advocating the guillotine, but uh, I, I definitely, I, you know, 
as an individual, as an organization, we're trying to move the needle as much as we can on re recalibrating humanity. Back to your point about the golden rule is it the solutions are simple and we make them more complex because we are so preoccupied with what our faith is. This is our faith. Yeah. This is where we find comfort. Holding up his phone for podcast and, listeners. Right. And, and, and yeah, that's where we find our faith. And that's where it dictates our day-to-day life and what we say and what we do or what we can't say and what we do. Yes. Rather than taking a step back and using common sense of being a human. And if it's okay, I'd like to comment on something you said earlier about mm. the primitive nature of our brains. Mm. Right. One of the fundamental things about that is the negativity. Right. We are designed organically through our brains because as cavemen and women, when we were searching for food, staying away from the dinosaurs and the fires, we were always scanning the negativity for threat. Yes. And that that dimension of our brains is still alive. That's why there's rubbernecking when you see the accident on the interstate. Yes. Right. If there if there's a child standing there with a bouquet of flowers and laughing, there's going to be less likely people are going to look at that. Yes. Versus the negative thing. And that's where we've got to shift our thinking. And that that can be done in, in a mob way or it can be done on an individual family way to remind children and adults about these simple facts that most of the public is not aware of. And that's the that's the inoculation. And you can go to I'm looking at the is this is this you guys national cph.com? Is that you? Yeah. Yeah, yes, sir. We just okay. launched a website. It's www.emotionalvaccines.com. Okay. Do you think we give too much advice on this podcast? <laughs> Girl, this is a podcast. The advice does hit way harder when you cuss with it. Yeah, and we do plenty of that. This show, it ain't for kids. <laughs> Definitely not for the kids, but we do talk a lot about family. I mean, it comes with the territory and with a show called Baby Mama's No Drama. I just wonder if people get the gist of the ad we just did. You mean like the massive billboard in Times Square? That one? Well, yeah, that (laughs) one, but also this one, right? I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Kale Lowry. And I'm V Rivera. And we're the hosts of Baby Mama's No Drama Podcast. The Webby Award-winning Baby Mama's No Drama Podcast. Two baby mamas chatting it up about life, bedroom talk, family, and whatever drama we are trying to get out of the way. All while being just a little bit explicit. No, a lot explicit. (laughs) (laughs) So listen to us, the Baby Mama's No Drama Podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts. And, and tell me more. I don't know anything about your organization. Tell me about that, the National Center for Performance Health. So we, we started back in 2007. Originally, the name was Maravista Health, my last name. We started doing it that time, uh, and I dislike the term, uh, but this is how we started doing employee assistance programs for client companies. My business partner came to me at that time with the idea, you know, frankly, as a physician, I had no idea what an employee assistance program was. Mm. Uh, and so that's and then a few years back, I started rethinking 
is, again, to the stigma point about mental uh, and employee assistance program, because that has some negative connotation to it, too, mm. is that I started thinking, what is it? How do we help individuals and families? We look at their performance, their performance at work, their performance at school and life, socially, athletically. That's the name, National Center for Performance Health. So our clients are employer groups, colleges and universities and some other uh, things that, that we do. And in the community. Great. And that's also nationalcph.com. Is that where they yes, go? Sir. Yeah. So, yeah, this is, um, it's like all hands on deck right now. I'm, I'm so glad to be talking to you. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. You know, it's the stigma part also, one last uh, sort of comment about it. it. To the extent that you can help patients not have stigma impact their self-efficacy, which I actually find that pretty easy to do with a little education. The, it, it's actually the families that complain more about stigma. They're the ones that seem to be more, I don't know, it's more complicated for them. They're more affected by like, like my, my drug addict patients, and I use the term drug addiction because they use that term with affection. They 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 identify as that that they love to call themselves junkies and addicts. That's they they because they're in recovery. They've overcome. They're they're recovering from this thing. And um, I've never ever dealt with a drug addict that complained about stigma. I've only heard I've only dealt with drug addicts that complained about wanting more drugs. That's, that's all. That's all my patients are concerned with when right. they have that disorder. Uh, but the families complain like crazy. Uh, and, and I think it, it happens, it's a little different in other mental, mental disorders or whatever we're going to call them, psychiatric conditions, brain diseases. Um, but it's still the family primarily that, that seems affected by stigma more than the patients insofar as self-efficacy is protected for the patient. Yes, I, I understand that. And I agree with that. I want to go back also tie that into what you said earlier about the government. Yeah, uh, this is my opinion. When you look at things are described as mental illness and mm. substance abuse, mm. right? They're separated. When we talk about traumas, it again is everyday life challenges that as children, adolescents or adults face struggling with emotionally or mentally that then lead to a substance abuse potential disorder or mm. condition, mm -hmm. right? And so, but we separate those two out and what that does in my judgment, it doesn't ever get to the origin of the trauma or the challenges that a, a adult had, may have had as a child that needs to be explored. And you're further correct. It, the stigma does continue with the families because of shame. Mm. And that's what we just recorded a video or uh, provided a script to, to a, a nonprofit encouraging them and the person who lost a daughter uh, is to encourage through this video communication and audio messaging, it's okay to talk about it if you've lost someone to a psychiatric condition or yeah. substance abuse, yeah. because that's where the stigma reduction can begin. Well, not only that, but I've noticed there's another piece, uh, you know, I, I've talked about the uncanny valley and there's other things, but there's another piece that it, it, it applies to medical illness as well as psychiatric illness. P people, they'll, they'll, what they, way they are, they will articulate it is, I don't know what to say. 
I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what the right thing to do is. And and really, you don't have to say anything. You have to just be there. You can be there and nod your head. That is sufficient. But to pull away because you're uncomfortable, that that's hurtful. Dr. Drew, you're spot on. It's, yeah. again, answers are simple. It's being in the moment. Yeah. And, and as my maternal grandfather in India, through letter communications, brilliant man, sent a letter one time to me. He, he goes, he was a, a philosophical, spoke five different languages, an attorney by training, wrote me a letter and said, the simplest things in life are the most difficult to achieve. Mm. Being in the moment and just listening to someone is a powerful thing, but it's hard. Because of our constructs in our brain, oh, somebody just said the word suicide to me. What do I do? Mm. And panic. And we've got to normalize those conversations. As we say, Dr. Drew, the real line of first defense is not a therapist, not a psychiatrist, not an inpatient or outpatient. It's each other. It's our neighbor. It's somebody we go to church with. It's a family member. It's a grandmother crazy it's crazy that we don't we don't know that or we don't rely on that i guess we always have again i i think we're out of alignment i think i think this is not a normal state we're in uh, i i think things are gone a little sideways right now and uh, these are you know i mean look at any scripture they all tell you the same thing right and, and it's all, it's all you know we've we've known these things and whenever people say we now i know now we figured it out be careful run because we've always known, we've always known how we should, what we should do. Uh, but yes, being in that moment, being present, uh, it's hard. I know people feel like they're going to be overwhelmed by the emotion of the other person, and that you know we don't have. You mentioned narcissism earlier, and narcissists don't have great boundaries, and so they fear being overwhelmed by other people's emotion. Doesn't need to happen. Can trigger your anxiety. That's okay. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to run away screaming. Just kind of sit there and be with it. And if you do have good boundaries, and as we as you get better at helping other people, I always tell people, don't, don't just listen with your ears. Uh, listen with your whole body. Your body will inform, because a lot of information goes back and forth between bodies and space. This is why the electronic media is so inefficient, ineffective in some of this. You, you're, you're, things will occur to you. You'll have feelings. Your body will inform you in ways that uh, your ear will not by itself. Oh, I agree. Because as we all know, the majority of communication is nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. People have lost right? track of that. You and I know that. I think people have lost track of that. They, they think when you say that, I think they hear, oh, body language. No, 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 no. There's a lot. There's a just, we don't even, we're not even, we don't even know probably 80% of what goes on. We haven't figured that out yet. We know there's a socio-emotional exchange system. It's complicated. And, and do you know, this is my belief, that the ones that really can listen the best are children. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. They're sponges. Because yeah. they're not carrying around, especially if you're working in foster care for over 25 years. Mm. Children who have been traumatized are even more hypervigilant mm. and aware mm -hmm. of the emotions in their environment. Yes. That's why I, I've been driven to support them and work. I've been honored to work with them. That's back to the negativity sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, awareness. Like, again, if there's a leopard in the tree, we need to be aware of that. That's more important 
than uh, the smile on the you know the our partner across the way that that leopard needs needs our attention much as uh, these kids that have been through horrible chaos they are vigilant to the other humans so they don't fall victim to this stuff again so well listen we this has been a lot of fun uh, and we're about out of time have we missed anything is there anything else you want to bring people's awareness to uh, no, other than I, I alluded to this, I've gone through some personal adversity myself and I'm a story of walking hope and optimism. I, I have, uh, I, I have had major depression. I'm prone to depression. I have generalized anxiety disorder. I've had panic disorder when I've been depressed. I've been, I've sat in a therapist chair for 10 years. All good. It's, it's part of the human experience. Yeah. I've gone through both. I've gone through some major medical issues oh good yeah i have prostate cancer so again i i have no feelings i i don't understand the resistance to talk about it so we we, you and i need to be a model for that so yeah i in my situation january of 22 i had two massive strokes oh goodness and and the second one was in neuro icu at tampa general hospital and i'm grateful to my maker and grateful to the medical team the second one dr drew is in the hospital, my left internal carotid artery dissected. Uh, my entire left hemisphere was out. I was paralyzed head to toe, blind in my right eye. Uh, I was in the hospital, fortunately, uh, and was able to get a stent put in after they called my wife for informed consent. That total hospitalization from the first stroke to the second one in the hospital Hospitalization lasted five days. I walked out of Tampa General Neuro wow. ICU. The chance of surviving was 50-50. Yeah. The chance of surviving without any deficits was less than 5%. Wow, congratulations. I'm curious, when you were out, did you have anisognosia and what that no, experience no. is like? No, because that, that's such an odd thing. And, and, it, it, and it's germane to mental illness these days because we've privileged anisognosia, which or denial, whatever you want to call it, uh, in, in, in people's experience as though that should be protected by the law. And that's exactly the opposite of what should be happening. Yes. Yeah. So, so I, I get it. All right. Well, thank, thank you, you so sharing. much again, tell people where you'd like them to go. Should they, uh, be interested in, uh, seeing more information? Absolutely. www.emotionalvaccines.com. And I'm very grateful for your time and your passion and everything you do for humanity. Dr. Drew. Thank you, Dr. Merritt. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom. And I uh, hope it helps lots of people. I'm honored. Thank and you. We'll see you all next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hold on to your jingle bells. Pluto TV has all your holiday favorites for free. Enjoy Christmas classics like Scrooge with Bill Murray or Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. Plus, dive into festive channels like holiday movie favorites by Lifetime or Hallmark Movies and more. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming holiday favorites on live channels and on demand. With thousands of free movies and TV shows, Pluto TV is your home for the holidays. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.